This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Read Supply. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singandog.com to see all of their products. That's S-I-N-G-I-N-D-O-G.com. This episode is sponsored in part by MKL Reads. MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH for free shipping on your first order. That's coupon code DOUBLE SPACE READ SPACE DISH, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, Khalid, it's episode six. Hey, Jackie, how's it going? It's going very well. I'm feeling a lot more relaxed this week because my recital um, was last week. So I'm very happy to have that off of my plate. I'm sending you a virtual high five. (laughs) Well, it was kind of strategically chosen. Um, We book our dates a year in advance and I thought, oh, that'll be super nice to have that done nice and early and get it out of the way. And I'm so happy that I thought ahead that much because um, we've very quickly got a double read day coming up. Um, And yeah, a lot to look forward to and happy to have that done. I was really happy with how it went. And yeah, it was cool. That sounds awesome. And I heard a couple of your recordings from your recital that you posted and you sound amazing. Thank you very much. I had some awesome collaborators. The concept of the recital was dance. That was my theme on how I picked my repertoire. Um, And so I played these Kachina dances by Native American composer Lewis Ballard that I um, had been wanting to play for a while. And then I did a transcription of the Piazzolla Grand Tango, which nearly killed me, but I got through it. I was like, oh my gosh, what made me choose this? I have no time to breathe. It's so hard. I am not a cello, but I got through it. (laughs) And then um, one kind of really cool thing I fell in love with and really wanted to play the Jenny Brandon Colored Stones. I love her music so much. Uh, She's fantastic. And I was really excited to play this piece, but I was like, oh, this doesn't go with dance at all. It's an unaccompanied piece called Colored Stones. (laughs) Uh, But we have this really great department of dance um, here where I work. And so I went to one of the dance faculty and said, hey, could we maybe put some choreography with this? And she was like, that'd be awesome. And so there are a bunch of um, students who needed to do kind of a capstone project. And so we collaborated on that. And it was super cool to present this kind of capital A art collaborative between music and dance. And yes, glad it happened. Glad it went well and glad it's over. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on with you there in Mississippi? Oh, things are good. Um, This weekend I got to play Beethoven 5, which is, I don't know, Beethoven is, it's hard to choose favorites, but I really think he's my favorite. I mean, it, it just gets me so fired up every time. 
even Beethoven five, which is like the most played, but that last movement makes me want to, you know, rampage across the fjords or something. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And uh, we're back this week, and um, we have the All South Honor Band here at Southern Miss uh, this weekend, which is great. I'm going to meet 14 high school oboists, which is... Oh, my gosh. So great. I know. I can't wait. I'm really excited. It's a lot of oboe. It's a lot of oboe. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we have our PRISM concert uh, this weekend, uh, which is... Have you ever been to a PRISM concert? A prison concert? A prism concert. Oh, no. What's a, pr- what's a prism <laughs> concert? <laughs> I have to say a prison concert is also a really good idea, but this is different. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's like a musical potpourri, basically. Like, you just have a bunch of different um, ensembles located in different parts of the auditorium, and... Um, you know, the spotlight shines on one ensemble, they play their thing, and then it goes to another ensemble, they play their thing, and it's, like, really pretty casual and unpredictable and fun. The whole thing is really fun. Well, next time you can do the Cell Block Tango from Chicago and do a prison prism concert. Yuck, yuck, what? yuck. What we are doing, and I know you're going to be so excited about it, is one of our bassoon music education students, Jonathan, wrote an arrangement of some Beyonce songs for Double Read Ensemble. So we are doing that. I am sending Jonathan some virtual praise hand emojis for his Beyonce arrangements. (laughs) Yeah, he killed it. It's really fun. And there is some choreography, so I'm really proud of it. And I think it's going to be um, the icing on the prob- It's not the icing on the cake. It's going to be the main event. Let's be real. That sounds phenomenal. I wish I could be there. <laughs> I wish you could be here, too. We could do the choreography together. Y- sure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've got some kind of exciting news for our listeners. We had this kind of fun idea that we would do a giveaway contest. So why don't you tell our listeners about what is up for grabs in our contest? So some of our awesome sponsors have donated some things, and then we've donated some things. So for prizes, we have two free pieces of your choice from JDW Sheet Music. Uh, Janet Ingalls CD called Music That Should Have Been Written for the Oboe, which I have heard and sounds awesome. Uh, a spool of neon green Rigotti Nylon FF thread and a tube of Dr. Slick Organic Cork Grease. So this is a prize package, which is valued at over $50. So I know, what? I know our listeners are thinking, how do I get that? How do I win this contest? And it's very simple. Um, so this podcast you're listening to is being released on February 15th. And we, along with the posting of this episode, are going to post on all of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, a thread for the giveaway. And under that giveaway, 
post, we want you to answer the question, which oboist or bassoonist would you love to have us interview on an upcoming episode? Now, we can't make any promises that this person will come on, but we want to get some feedback and see what direction you guys want us to take. So anyone who comments is going to be automatically entered into a drawing. And um, on February 23rd, we will announce the winner and who gets all these awesome prizes. So you can comment anytime between now and February 22nd. And if you're an international listener, don't cry because you're included too. Yes, we will ship anywhere. You don't need to worry about that international shipping. We want to hear from you as well. So for our shout outs this week, we are going to collaborate, but we still have two for you. And our first is Aaron Off's YouTube channel. So Aaron is the bassoon teacher at Jacksonville State University, and her YouTube channel has a variety of videos, um, instructional, overview, hilarious, um, to address all things bassoon and even double read. There are some oboe and English horn things on here as well. And one of my favorite videos I have a clip up here for is, um, the scary bassoon that she did for Halloween. (laughs) Um, She found this old bassoon that lacked all of the keys and was just this kind of uh, Frankenstein, you know, what's going on, like the kind of bassoon you see when you teach double read tech. Uh And then all you hear is the psycho theme. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So she takes us through the scariest bassoon she can find. And it's pretty bad. I was like, oh, I thought I saw some cray cray bassoons. And she found the craziest. So um, so brave. Yes. But there's a ton of stuff on here. Um, The thing I really like about it is she does product reviews um, and product comparisons. You know, we play expensive instruments and so I was uh, just really happy to see these videos that say compare um, bassoon cases or bassoons for under five thousand dollars so that you can um, be an educated consumer and I think that's a unique thing that these videos have to offer. Yeah and she's honest too she's not just like oh all of this is wonderful. Yeah, she definitely brings a critical lens and a professional opinion. So check out Erin Off. that's E-R-Y-N-O-F-T. And if you just put that into the YouTube search engine, she will come right up and you'll be glad you did. Yeah, and her um, picture on the YouTube, her like picture for her YouTube channel is super fly. You're probably already familiar that the whisper key usually depresses a button on the vocal, making low notes easier to happen. On this instrument, the whisper key is simply a button. A button that does not attach anywhere. Now, unfortunately for me, when I bought this bassoon, it did not have a vocal with it. So our second shout out is a CD called The Singing Oboe. And the oboist on the CD is Andrew Parker, who teaches oboe at the University of Texas at Austin. And he collaborates with Alan Huckleberry from the University of Iowa on piano. Um, It's called The Singing Oboe, and it is romantic German lead transcriptions. Jackie, do you want to talk a little bit about um, the different um, pieces that he includes on here? 
Yeah, the big piece on here is that he does the entire Dichterliebe um, by Robert Schumann. Um, and then he's also got several Schubert songs, um, Gretchen at the Spinning Wheel, uh, and then also Beethoven's Adelaide. I own this CD personally, and I love it. Um, I think one of the things that I love so much about Andrew Parker's playing is how vocal it is. And so when he applies his beautiful playing to these vocal works and these wonderful romantic melodies, it's just heavenly. It's wonderful. I can't recommend it highly enough. And this is something that, you know, even pedagogically, like I'm always trying to tell my students, be more vocal, be more operatic, be more like a singer, try to do what they would do. What would they do? Do it. (laughs) And it's awesome that now we can point to, you know, an actual CD of vocal transcriptions and be like, see, see, he did it, do it. Yeah, definitely. So uh, with his permission, we are going to include a little bit of one of the tracks from Dichter Liebe. This is for my German-speaking listeners and friends, and especially our German audience, of which we do have some. Uh, Please forgive my pronunciation. We spent (laughs) several minutes before uh, starting to record deciding how I can give this my best attempt. But Im wunderschönen Monat Mai. Did I do okay, Galit? I think it was pretty close, but still, we're very sorry. We're sorry, yes. So (laughs) enjoy better playing than my pronunciation. Janet Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her reputation on providing high-quality handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, often much faster. Monthly read subscriptions are available as well as single orders, and on the site you can also find read cases, tools, and supplies. Janet's own sheet music arrangements and her new CD, Music That Should Have Been Written for the Oboe. One thing that I love about Jenna Ingalls' site is this offering of monthly read subscriptions, which I think is a really awesome and unique offering of this company. Being able to depend on having your reads shipped and arrived to you when you need them is so crucial, as we know. And I really compel our listeners to go to her website and her Facebook page, where you can see high-quality, up-close photos of these phenomenal reads, so you know the quality of the reads that you're purchasing, and I highly recommend Janet Ingle Reads. This episode is brought to you in part by JDW Sheet Music. JDW Sheet Music is an online store that specializes in original chamber music pieces for wind instruments. The website offers a variety of music transcriptions of composers like Debussy, Bach, Piazzolla, and Rachmaninoff. Owner and arranger Jessica Wilkins has produced over 60 chamber music arrangements featuring oboe and bassoon. 
Jessica's works have been performed at colleges across the country, as well as the 2015 IDRS conference in Tokyo, Japan. For access to the entire JDW Sheet Music catalog, please visit jdwsheetmusic.com. In looking at her catalog, it really is extensive. She's got things for all sorts of double read combinations, and she does custom transcriptions. Um, and on her website, she lists all of these really cool ensembles and uh, oboe studios that she's done transcriptions for. Um, and there's really nothing better than having somebody compose slash transcribe for your instrument who understands your instrument. So it's a really cool service that she offers, and I would highly recommend JDW Sheet Music. So continuing on with Mentor Month, this episode, we welcome Eric Olson, professor of oboe at Florida State University, and your mentor, Galit. Why don't you introduce us to Dr. Olson? Well, um, suffice to say, I'm such a huge super fan of Dr. Eric Olson. I studied with him in my doctorate, and um, in my opinion, he's one of the best teachers and performers out there. Um, he's got such a gorgeous sound. He plays principal oboe in the Palm Beach Opera and Tallahassee Symphony, and he teaches at the Brevard uh, Music Center in North Carolina for as a summer festival. Um, and he's just one of the most chill, easygoing, wonderful human beings I've ever met. And when I was studying with him, I was really kind of, I know this will be surprising for you, Jackie, but I was really kind of an anxious head case. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his like relaxed attitude about everything totally helped me um, chill out and just, you know, whenever I was really stressed out about something, he would be like, well, practice more. And I was like, what do you mean practice more? He was like, well, just practice more. If you practice more, it'll get better. And I was like, oh, okay. So then I would practice more and it would get better. And then my anxiety would go away and it was magic. <laughs> it's good advice. <laughs> yeah, it's really good advice. And he's um, got really good ideas about music and life and he's you know still one of my mentors you know like you were saying with Benjamin Coelho you call him with big decisions and I also call uh, Eric with big decisions and I just I can't say enough good things about him so I'm really excited to introduce our listeners to Dr. Eric Olson. Welcome to the podcast Eric Olson from Florida State we're so glad to have you thank you for coming on. Well thank you for having me. Could you start off by telling our listeners a bit about how you started playing the oboe and if you had anyone in particular who encouraged you along your way? Well, I'd be happy to. I, I started a little bit late, I guess, but when I, was in, when I was in elementary school, I started on the clarinet when I was eight at the time, and I played the clarinet until I was starting high school. And then I switched to the oboe. But during the time I was in elementary school, my parents were both professional musicians. So, you know, we sort of had mandatory concert attendance in our house. It was never about homework. It was always 
go practice. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good situation for a kid who wants to have music as a, as something they do well later on in life to have parents that, that encourage practicing above anything else really, I think was a big help. But I was fortunate to, to have some really good models even back before I started playing. I lived in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and there was a, a gentleman that played in the Cedar Rapids Symphony of all places. And he's, he's a IDRS member. He's still around. His name is Ted Hager. And he was, uh, really inspirational for me to listen to when I was just a kid, you know, and, um, so I wanted to play that instrument. That was the sound that I heard, and that's the sound that I wanted to make, you know. So I had, he was a Tabato student. He was one of Tabato's last students, I think. And I've only talked to Ted once, I think, in my entire life, but I did tell him and give him credit for my having started to play the oboe. Um, so basically, then I... When you're, when you started on another instrument and you're involved in band and things like that, it's a little bit hard to switch. But when I started high school, I just decided to make a break from that and I, I quit playing in the band. Sorry, band directors. I quit playing in the band and started practicing the oboe. And I, w- I was lucky my, uh, I lived in a little town called Nacogdoches in Texas. You know where that is, Kali. And uh, my first teacher was on the faculty there at Stephen F. Austin University. And his name was Travis Cox. And he was a dedicated and fine teacher. He, uh, he spent a lot of time with me. And my first lesson consisted of uh, me making my first sounds on the oboe which were not uh, very sweet, as you might imagine. And But once I got the, the hang of it, you know, how much air it took to, to make it start, I was, I was in pretty good shape. And then he had me, he taught me to play a G major scale. And he's in, you know, it was, it was just all very, very, uh, very low tech back then, you know, it was the mid sixties and, um, so he just wrote out the scale. I knew how to read music, of course. He just wrote out the fingerings on a piece of paper and gave it to me. He said, Here, go play this as much as you can stand for the next week and come <laughs> back. And then, before I could get out the door, he said, okay, now we're going to make an oboe read. <sighs> and remember, this was my first lesson. <laughs> okay. So you see first what I did about the first ever lesson. Was the first ever read. Wow. And man, that is, I mean, that is dedication. I don't know how long we sat there. Because my best friend and I both started the oboe together. That was a big help, too. His name was Wake Foster. I think he's no longer living. Um, but um, that, w- that was also a big help, you know, to have a, a close friend that was kind of pushing me along, too. Um so we'd go to our lessons basically at the same time, and then we made reads together, the three of us. And I mean, we must have been there for a couple of hours. Can you imagine teaching an eighth grader and a ninth grader how to 
had a rapper read. You know what that's like. It's a lot of cane flying across the room and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you just have no clue what you're doing and just sort of go along with it. And the read worked, and, and there I was, you know. I was off and running, and I bought <clears throat> I bought read supplies from a guy named Marcel Dandois. So this is a this is really these are really links to the past. He was one of the old French guys that came over and and played in the Cincinnati Symphony. He and Albert Andreau wow were in the Cincinnati Symphony, and uh, it was really cool, you know. He, would, he just had this private little business. He'd send me extra cane, and he'd write me a letter, you know, and say, here's some extra pieces for you to wrap. I mean, it was a completely different kind of vibe back then. You know, you couldn't dial up RDG and get your super, super-duper shaped cane of superior quality um, over the Internet or over the telephone. You know, just, it was, it was, it was great, though. You know, it was... Uh, very nice, and he was in Dallas at the time, so it was close. So that was that was the beginning of it, and then uh, my family moved after that year, and I didn't have a teacher for an oboe teacher for several years. I studied with some really talented people. One was a clarinetist, and one was a flutist. So it's not quite the same, even though uh, their directions were very good, and they taught me other things. You know, I. I studied a lot of chamber music with the clarinetist because he had been a pretty well-known freelancer in New York City back in the freelancing heyday of New York City. Um, and he was a he was a friend of Henry Schu- Henry Schumann and Harry Schulman. You probably know those names, very famous guys mm-hmm. from back then. Uh, so that was a big help. And then when I was a freshman in college, I I took private lessons from James Caldwell. And uh, the next year, then I had a teacher at my school. His name was Ben Wright. And he was he was good also. He was, you know, I think all of my teachers have been very good at, at one thing or another. And Ben was just, you know, very good at nuts and bolts kind of, kind of teacher, you know, Selner etudes and things like that. Learn the Haydn concerto, learn a few excerpts. So it was fine for me, and I had a lot of experience in my undergrad. I went to James Madison, and um, it wasn't a very big music department at the time, but I played a lot, and that made up for some of the things that I didn't get from uh, from fellow students because I was always the best one, you know, and there were only four or five of us probably, and um, so I played first chair and everything, Um but I did start playing in the, I played in the Roanoke Symphony in college. I played in the Lynchburg Symphony in college. I was always pretty good at kind of getting out there and getting gigs for myself. You know, and it's, it's not rocket science. I mean, it's a few phone calls and showing up can do a, a lot for somebody's career, you know, at least for somebody's playing experience, you know which is part of your career. So when you go off to grad school, you've actually played in some orchestras and you've played some repertoire. I see a lot of people today that went to a lot better schools than I did um, that when they come, say, to Brevard for study in the summer and we sit down together to play a Beethoven symphony, 
in the in the big orchestra. They've never played a Beethoven symphony before in their lives, mm-hmm. and they're in their they're in their early twenties. So, I mean, there there are certain advantages and disadvantages to each way, and I don't at this point I don't think I would change anything about it. And I'm, I went to grad school at Ohio State. I studied with Bill Baker. He was excellent for me. He really did as much to encourage me as anybody had ever done. And um, there was a big class of students there. Uh, Laura Albeck was in that class. James Brody, who teaches at University of Colorado, he was in that class. James Prodan who was um, a really great oboe player. Um, I think he's, Jim's retired now, but he was a long time for a long time, he was the archivist of the uh, for IDRS. Um, you know, so some pretty pretty significant people, you know, um, that later became professionals were in the same class, and that was really good for me. Uh, and then after I was there for a year or two, I started going up to Cleveland and taking private lessons from John Mack, and that was you know um, another level for me. So uh, all those people, I would say, had a tremendous influence on me and encouraged me both, you know. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you learned from John Mack? He was just such a huge figure in the OPA world. I'd love to hear more about, you know, your studies with him. Well, I guess to start with, I mean, he just scared the devil out of me. and. <laughs> You know, there's there's something to that, you know, for just immediately upping your game. You know, you're you're paying attention on a different level when you're when you're talking to somebody you've always heard about, but never knew, never really spoke to, you know, until you get up the courage to call them up on the telephone. And probably everybody that ever took lessons from him can still remember his phone number, you know, um, but. Um, he always seemed to be able to give me advice and uh, admonishment or encouragement in such a way that it lasted me for forever. And um, he always seemed to be able to say something with a, with a minimum amount of confusion and with with maybe even the right sort of emotional or psychological uh, uh, edge to it that would either make it more palatable or more memorable without killing me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so when he said something, he would, just, he would just expect you to do that. And then he would tell you in enough different ways that you, that you could get it. You know, uh, he had a, an endless supply, as you know, of anecdotes and comparisons and analogies that were really, really entertaining and and uh, thought provoking and got right to the point. You know, um, he also I think that I developed of course, I mean, some of this happens over time too, but he was he was speaking on a musical level that I didn't really comprehend. I don't know if you had that experience with him. 
Yeah, definitely. But many things that he said to me, you know, I had to remember because I had no clue what he was saying. Yeah, I, I have little notes in my in my Barrett um, articulation studies that years later I look back and I say, oh, that's what he was talking about. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, I was I was a pretty good student, and I would I would take careful notes when my lesson was over, so that I wouldn't forget what I what I'd learned. You know, I think. Stephen Hewitt said in, in you've seen his Stephen Hewitt method book, mm-hmm. uh, where he says something about the the lightest pencil marking is stronger than your best memory, and that's sort of true. Once you write it down by hand, you remember it. Mm-hmm. You remember it a lot better than you would just you know keeping it in your head. Um, so learning things about inflection and direction, um, different ways of expressing the exact same thing, um, making your music sound, um, making your music sound imaginative and spontaneous while doing it exactly the same way You'd done it five minutes ago. It, that was a big thing with him. Um, he taught me to cover my tone. Um, he taught me some things about voicing. You know, he honestly taught me a lot of really important things that he didn't he didn't have any recollection of having said to me years later. Because mm. uh, I'd ask him a question like. Well, when you, when you, when you voice a note to try to make it, uh, have more focus, do you do X, Y, or Z with your tongue or things like that? And he's like, I don't know, you know, <laughs> not necessarily, but I did have, you know, I did have, um, you know, Philadelphia influence as well. I auditioned for Curtis when I was going to college and I really wanted to study with Delancey, you know, and at the time he was about the only person that I knew. I mean, he was, he was the most recorded American oboe player, probably around the late sixties, early seventies, you know, mm-hmm. all those Philadelphia first chair things and the, the recording with the flower clock, all those things. Um, so he, his, uh, his name and reputation really stood out to me also. I did have that influence as well, so I'm not particularly all dialed into just one, just one studio of playing. I admire many, many different kinds of oboe playing. Um, we had recently a listener write in and share an um, embarrassing story about a tuning A, and we discussed kind of the anxiety of playing principal oboe. Mm-hmm. And you are the principal oboist at the Brevard Music Center in North Carolina, as well as the Tallahassee Symphony and the Palm Beach Opera. And I wondered if you could talk to us about uh, good principal oboe playing and how you go about that specific role. Well, that's that's quite a question. (laughs) (laughs) I think you have to be consistent I think you must have a good tone. 
And you must be flexible with your tone and your phrasing. Um, but I think, I think that people are most attracted, first off, to your sound, you know. Um, and as a principal oboist, you have to give a, a good A, a solid A, the same A every time. Um, maybe there's a certain amount of attitude that, that comes with it. If you can, if you can have a little swagger in your playing and be a good person, I think that's, I think that's a good idea, you know. Um, I, I practiced like, I practiced so much before I would uh, go to rehearsal, you know. And I think that, you know, even when I hadn't had quite as much experience, I think everybody could tell that I was, that I was trying, that I was learning, that I was, that I was doing something, you know. So, you know, there, there are certain things that you do that make people respect you, and one is being prepared. Um, the other is working hard enough so you can sound beautiful on a daily basis. Um, so uh, it's sort of like, uh, sounds kind of cliche, but it's sort of like cl- climbing the ladder of oboe playing, meaning you can't just practice and you can't just make reads. Uh, and maybe you can't do even, you know, trading off days doing that. You, you climb a ladder with both of your feet and both of your hands. And it's pretty hard to do it otherwise. Uh, so if, you know, if you're constantly on the lookout where you, you're, you're, you're going up those steps and you're changing levels in each area, but you're constantly trying to catch up with whichever one is falling farther behind. And I think, I think usually, usually it's the reeds. You know, often players can, can think of what they want to say, but they can't say it because um, they, they just don't have a voice that works for them. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's really important. I think having extremely good models is really important too. I think that you're going to, you're going to sound more like the people who's playing you adore and that you listen to. I don't know. I don't know if uh, people. I imagine that people do as much listening today as I did when I was a kid. But so um, modeling. I think that you know, if you have a good ear, first of all, you have to have a good ear. You have to have a really good ear and a certain amount of courage. There are lots of ways that that people get courage. You can you can naturally have courage. You can. You can prepare yourself um, and have more courage that way. Other people encouraging you helps you do that. But I think I think those two elements are are really strong. But back to the back to the hearing part of it. You know, if we have if you have a basically good ear, you're going to imitate the sounds that you hear most often. So, you know, I would try to surround myself with um, playing like Max or Robert Bloom or John Delancey, people like that, 
and Ray Still, who were who were uh, in the Gombergs, people that were in the in the big orchestras back in the '60s and early '70s that I knew. And of course, Woodhams had had started playing professionally then too, so he was he was a big uh, a big influence too. Um, but I I credit that for you know giving me an idea what what it was supposed to be like. So I could I could get closer to it on my own that way, and then you you know your teacher guides you to that, and your reads guide you to that. So again, it's about climbing those steps. I love that thing you said about the easy way to make people respect you is by being prepared. I feel like I want to get that on a cross stitch and hang it on my wall. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> plus, plus, you know, just kind of basic things that make you a good person, being willing to change, being flexible, being kind, uh, although, you know, still being able to stand up for yourself. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But there are ways to do those sorts of things. You can kind of stay out of any crossfire that might develop from conductors or concert masters or personal managers and people like that. You can you can do all that stuff and and still just sort of keep the blinders on and keep moving forward, so you don't get distracted. So changing gears just a little bit, um, I am, of course, very biased, but uh, you've had a very long and successful career at Florida State, and many of your students go on to have wonderful teaching and performing careers. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about your approach to teaching and what you've learned over your career? Sure. I'm humbled by, you know, being able to teach uh, all these people, and I think I think you have to go into it with a with a certain amount of humility when you start teaching. While at the same time, I mean, you have to have you have to have something to offer, but there's so much that you don't know. It's it's always on your mind, like if you that you don't know everything, you know. So you're uh, you're teaching and and experimenting and trying things, and I never. I never really thought of myself as the last word on anything uh, having to do with anything, really. But, you know, I think that that I have passed along some good information to my students. You know, I, and I've really tried to do it in a in a way that I was taught, you know. So I think I owe a lot of what I can do as a teacher to all of my teachers, because I think every single one of them had uh, had really good things to say, and so when you sit down in a lesson for the first time, it's quite a shock, you know. Um, I was I was really lucky to get to teach a lot early on. I taught some students when I was in college, you know, and of course I was I always talked to my my uh, friends that that studied where I was um, in Virginia. And then when I went to graduate school, right away, uh, Bill Baker uh, sort of channeled some teaching gigs my way because he certainly couldn't do everything himself. And uh, so I taught at places like Denison University and Otterbein College 
when I was living in Columbus. So I had um, I had these teaching jobs. I had about four students at Denison, and I think I had two students at Otterbein. So I mean, for a for a beginning teacher, that's that's a nice amount of responsibility. You know, it's not overwhelming. And, you know, a lot of the things that we're telling our students, a lot of things that young teachers can do are basic, basic, basic things. You know, play the play scales, play arpeggios, uh, play etudes and things like that. Think about your accuracy, your pitch, your tone. Um, I guess it's all about basics in the end. Mm-hmm. That's what really great players practice, you know. They practice they practice fundamental things so that they are they are able to do the more difficult things. Because without those basics they wouldn't they wouldn't have traveled to the point where it's gonna sound great, you know? Mm-hmm. So once you get once you get the basic things down, maintaining that is major responsibility. I think I've I've learned to accumulate uh fundamental knowledge to pass on to my students. And so uh, from those fundamentals, I try to get my students to practice and play inclusively to make a more cohesive and sharper image of what they're presenting in the music. So if you, you know, if you practice the notes once and then you practice the rhythms and then you practice the intonation, nothing's ever going to come out uh, inclusively. So if we can sort of take the commotion out of the project and boil it down to perhaps a slower passage or a doing it more slowly or doing it in smaller chunks that we can that we can practice inclusively. And although it may take longer to do that, uh, you're going to end up with a with a better product. So. When we can practice inclusively, we are going to get closer to uh, the composer's objectives and then beyond that to play to our full potential. So practicing inclusively, we get a certain amount of direction from the composer. Uh, And so if we do what the composer has put on the page, we get maybe half of what could be made of that music. So it is our individual practicing of fundamental elements of music that will allow us to play to our full potential. And then we fill in the gap of the other 50%. I I think that's a very unscientific way of looking at it, but it makes sense to me. And it keeps it from being boring too, because we should, we should be doing everything possible to keep the music from being just a boring, literal interpretation. That's right. And it's it's hard to do all the things we need to do at the same time. Very hard. So it, it takes more patience than most people have. The practicers are are going to rule the world, you know. The I people agree. People just sit there and do it. Well, my question was going to be um, what advice you would give um, for a young oboist who aspires for a career like yours, but I feel like you're giving um, such wonderful advice in that previous answer that maybe we could um, ask you to give specific read-making advice for the young oboist who aspires to have a career like yours. Uh, by stock in Lugier. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or a 3D printer. Or yeah, right, yeah. right. 
um, again, you know, I think you you almost have to have a teacher. I mean, you have to have a teacher. Some people are pretty crafty with their read making, you know. There are people who have learned to make pretty darn good reads without very much direction. But, boy, oh, boy, I mean, that first lesson sort of sealed it for me. That, you know, there's no substitute for having a, a professional of good quality showing you what to do right from the beginning. So I didn't really have any, you know, I didn't have nearly as many questions about read, reads as I would have had if that had been a mystery to me for a couple of years. So I would say, you know, as soon as you can make reads without hurting yourself, you should start making reads. If you get some of the fundamental things down, I, mean, I couldn't really make my own reads to play concerts on for a year or something like that. Although, you know, I played my first read. But it, it, it was an odd feeling after after my first year, I was sort of, you know, I didn't have an oboe teacher. There was a there was a girl that that went to James Madison who was a pretty good read maker and she would make reads for me. But then by the time I was a junior in high school, she was gone and I still didn't have an oboe teacher. So I'd just make my own reads, you know, and that was that. And scrape until they made made sound and I knew how to do those basic things already. Um, and I knew how to basically, I knew how to wrap them, I knew how to scrape a little bit, I knew how to clip them into tune and stuff like that. So, you know, I went to all-state band and things like that when I was a junior in high school, and um, I didn't really know that much about reed making, but I, I made all my own reads. And the guy who was in all-state with me was Jim Ryan. Wow. Texas, and he was from the big city, you know, he was from D.C., so he had he had these oboe teachers. I mean, I was just like, you know, my jaw just fell open, you know, listening to Jim play when he was a senior in high school. I just couldn't believe it. Um, he was really good. He was he was amazing. I didn't have that kind of background yet at that point, you know. And I don't really know that my background really quite fit into any mold like that, you know, Yale Juilliard or Cleveland Juilliard or anything like that ever. So it doesn't have to be like that. Certainly an advantage. But So advice for young oboe players, get a teacher. Find the best teacher you can find, whether they're down the block or 100 miles away, and go take lessons from that guy or woman. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll put you on the right path probably. I think we have a pretty high level of, of knowledge in the, in the oboe community about making reads. So there are a lot of people who can really positively affect a young person's read making. And I think also, you know, if you're if you're situated in uh, in a way that you can do it, your friends will teach you a lot about read making. Later on, when um, I think I was in graduate school and I played in this summer festival with Fred Corman and Peggy Michael. And it was was this American Symphony Orchestra League Festival. In Orkney Springs, Virginia, this completely charming, falling down, broken down, old Civil War era hotel back in the sticks in Virginia, up against the mountains. You can go over the mountain next to this old resort, and you were in West Virginia. So it was sort of the Western Shenandoah Valley, you know. And uh, like those guys taught me a lot about reed making, especially Fred. I think Peggy and I both went to to Fred Corman for advice on reed making. I was about 21 or 
something, and, and he was almost 30, I think. So, you know, he really knew, he knew a lot. I mean, he had this huge background. He was playing professionally, and he sounded like a god, you know. And so um, that was really great to, to actually sit every day with somebody who could play like that. And he was actually a very strong influence on my tone as well. Um, but those, those kinds of uh, collegial relationships mean a lot to all of us, I think. Mm-hmm. So we all wish that we had more practice time. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you make the most of the practice time that you do get? I think that you gain efficiency as you get a little bit older because our lives, the rest of our lives tend to take off in different directions. We have, you know, life partners and children and things like that. You just, you can't even imagine earlier on having had those kinds of distractions around you. Because we're more or less, you know, early on are able to just go about, do our practicing whenever the heck we want to. So I think you have to, again, you, you practice the fundamentals. You practice what got you to that point in the first place. And, and there is a list of things that you could probably say in your own playing, okay, this, this exercise works for me, and I've really seen it make me better. So once you get that, you tend to hang on to that thing, like long tons, for example. I never really talked about long tons with anybody. People would talk about, um, especially in Philadelphia, uh, people like Caldwell taught me this exercise, this horrible, horrible, evil exercise <laughs> where you start, you, you do one to nine to one. And you start on low D and make a fabulous crescendo up to an octave E diminuendo for eight counts and back to one on the low D and hold that D, you know, so you didn't just, you know, just go down and smack it and stop. So it had to be a controlled diminuendo with a graceful ending where you, where you, so it sounded like you intended to end it there, you know, in beginnings that sounded like you intended to start then, not the third or fourth time your, your tone slapped against the reed, but the very first time when that tone would just like appear out of the, out of the mist, you know, um, that was hard to do. Man, that was really hard to do. But so that was that was my my example of long tones um, that I and I still use that exercise with my students. And I know uh, Caldwell's many, many, many great students have have heard of that exercise. He had a lot of fabulous students. So then at a certain point, I thought, well, I don't I don't think my endurance is good enough. So I started playing more long tones and started, you know, sort of clocking myself on long tones to see how long I could actually hold a note or an arpeggio or a series of notes, you know, like in a scale. I think that was really beneficial to me. And I, so I kind of still do that on a daily basis. I think, I think you're going to be more successful in your daily playing if you can begin with one note that sounds good. So starting with long tones is a great way to practice inclusively and have an easier result, you know. 
you're you're playing a long tone. Say you just you just want to play mezzo forte with a with a beautiful tone. You know, I think that's that's a fair starting place. Not nearly as daunting as starting at piano, but say starting that no mezzo forte like like the flute players do with their Moise exercises. You know, they'll play and just increasingly more notes, but each one held for a fairly long time. Mm-hmm. They hear the first note, you play the first note. Is there anything I can do to make that one note sound better? You know, and you, these calculations can come very quickly. You repeat it, try to do that, play it again. You are free to use your imagination on what might be better. Usually it's air or embouchure, but one of those two elements, you know, a correction in one way or another, like, you know, using more of the, uh, Mac used to call them the Fu Manchu muscles, you know, um, the Yosemite Sam muscles, um, um, you know, using more, more direction from there or using a more quality airstream. For example, there are a lot of times when, when you think to yourself, if I, if I used 25% more air intensity on that note, but I didn't play any louder, would that make it better? And it almost always does. Hmm. Of course, unless you're going for the complete opposite effect, unless you want something to sound very, uh, very ethereal and distant. You'd, you'd still be, you'd still be supporting a lot though, you know? Sometimes the quietest notes have the most fiery support, you know. I like to have a good time in, in teaching and playing, too. And I like to be myself, you know. And I can be kind of goofy sometimes and I enjoy that, too, you know. I think humor goes a long way to making a person more human. Totally. They see that, they see that, you're, that you are serious about what you do, but you don't take yourself too seriously. Um. I wonder if you could tell us about a favorite memory of a past performance that you have. I think I think my my senior recital in college was a, a big milestone for me because it was the first time I'd played a recital and I memorized it. And this was the first playing I'd done as a serious oba player. So, yeah, that senior recital was a, was a big thing for me because I actually stood up there and played a whole recital from memory and, and didn't freak out. And, uh, you know, that was, that was a real milestone for me. And I think I really started to practice seriously, seriously, seriously when I was a senior in college. So I think that was, that was a, an important one for me. Well, I've had lots of concerts, you know, the concerts where I thought I did a really good job every once in a while. Those, those stand out to me. And, you know, your, your continuous playing, maybe the most meaningful one is the last one that you did, a, that you really thought you did a good job on, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. that's the one that really matters, right? I mean, all of them matter to me, but, you know, the people that listen to us play don't really care if you had a good senior recital. <laughs> they, they probably think, you know, let's, you probably don't think about that, you know. They just see the finished product, you know. They don't see the steps involved that that you or I would see in, in each other, you know. So we did a really 
Um, I really enjoyed playing the Alpine Symphony last summer. That was a good one to me. Um, uh, playing the Strauss Concerto for the first time, that's always a standout, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, or when you play the Mozart Concerto for the first time. Uh, and if we're lucky, we get to play all kinds of pieces like that. I've gotten to play a really good number of concerto performances with orchestra, you know, Haydn, Strauss, Mozart, Martin, um, Von Williams, um, Strauss a couple of times, Mozart several times, Haydn a bunch of times. So I think, I think those are, those are nice. But, you know, the occasional performance when the, where you really feel like you're in control, there are a few times when you don't have to think about how you're playing the oboe that you can, you know, basically sing the part and not be so aware of having a, that in your mouth or having becoming so tired that you have to take a breath or something like that. That you can act where you can actually be spontaneous under pressure. Those are memorable, I think. Eric, thank you so much for being on Double Read Dish. It was so wonderful to have you. And uh, just as a final question, um, is where can our listeners find you on the Internet? Well, I have a uh, one of my students uh, put my CD on YouTube. So I think you can just type in my name, E-R-I-C-O-H-L-S-S-O-N, and you can find me there. Uh, on there is, is my CD and a few performances from Brevard and things like that. Um, and also at, at fsu.edu, find me there. Well, thank you so much again. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Well, that's it for Mentor Month. Thank you so much for joining us and for allowing us to introduce you to some of the most special people in our lives. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and also to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter where you can participate in that giveaway. So don't forget to do that. Thank you to our sponsors and thank you for listening. And if you want to get in touch, our email is doublereaddish at gmail.com.